Please stay tuned for the special edition of Cultural Baggage. The Mind-Body Connection This is a report from Santa Barbara on the 4th National Clinical Conference on Cannabis Therapeutics. For this half hour, we focus on the doctors. This is Dean Becker of the Drug Truth Network. Sponsors of this event included the California Nurses Association, the University of California San Francisco School of Medicine, and Patients Out of Time. It should be noted that the medical professionals in attendance garnered 16 hours of continuing education towards pain management control and end-of-life medicine. First, we hear the opening remarks from Dr. David Behrman, who outlines how the war on this herb began in 1937 in the U.S. Congress. Dr. William Woodward, the AMA's chief lobbyist, testified before Congress that the AMA, quote, the AMA knows of no danger from the use of cannabis, end quote. Now, at that time, there were 28 medications on the market that contained cannabis, um, and so we have to assume uh, that Dr. Woodward knew what he was speaking of. He had been involved with the AMA and drafting federal legislation as their lobbyist since before the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act in 1914, so he was no, uh, no neophyte. Well, let's get to the contemporary world. The American Nurses Association thinks that cannabis is medicine. They have a statement saying so. So does the American Public Health Association. Patients Out of Time has a list longer than your arm of medical organizations endorsing medicinal cannabis. Cannabis medicinal value has been recognized by the New England Journal of Medicine, certainly by the countries of Canada, England, Netherlands, and Israel. Uh, in pharmacies in Canada and the Netherlands, cannabis is available there. Doctors think that cannabis is a medication, at least the over 2,000 in Oregon that have made approvals or recommendations, uh, the estimated over 3,000 physicians in California, uh, and the roughly 800 doctors in Colorado. Researchers see the medical utility of cannabis. A government-funded 1999 report by the Institute of Medicine endorses cannabis's medicinal qualities. The University of California at San Diego Medical School is the headquarters for the California Marijuana Research Center. GW Pharmaceuticals has been doing research in uh, the United Kingdom since 1999. They have six greenhouses in a secret location in the south of England, um, and maybe more than that since I recently read that they're increasing their capacity uh, from 30 tons of cannabis a year to uh, 60 tons. Each of the six greenhouses has a different cannabis strain, and each contains 10,000 plants, and each of the 10,000 is a clone of the other. GW has had their product approved in Canada for sale about a year ago, and in June of last year, Bayer, that's the Bayer Aspirin people, have been marketing tincture of cannabis in Canada. In December of this last year, the British government, uh, the Home Office, authorized British physicians to write uh, prescriptions for people returning from Canada who had been uh, prescribed the tincture of cannabis uh, compound there. 
And most amazingly, uh, the Food and Drug Administration here in December of this year, this last year, uh, authorized a phase three clinical study to determine whether or not cannabis was useful in relieving pain associated with uh, cancer. Next, we hear from University of Colorado biologist, Dr. Robert Melamede. If you make a knockout mouse, and a knockout mouse is a, is a technological toy that we can do today. You can eliminate a gene, so you can eliminate the cannabinoid receptor, for example, and have a strain of mice that have no neurological cannabinoid receptor. They can't get high at all. They're really straight. Nerve regeneration is inhibited 50% in those mice because the cannabinoids are involved in your ability to generate new neurons. Something that 10 years ago they would have told you doesn't happen in humans. But we now know that it does, and we now know that the cannabinoids are fundamental players in allowing that to happen. Learning. This is such an interesting thing as well. You know, we all know, well, at least those of you who consume, that uh, it affects your memory. What was I going to say? <laughs> it affects short-term memory quite clearly, right? Well, it turns out that if you, do, if you look at these knockout mice and you try to educate them, early on, they will learn better than the wild type, the normal mice. So that early on, it seems to be better to not have your cannabinoid system. But after a short period of time, when that's true, what you see is that the wild type, the normal mice that have cannabinoids, they will accelerate and go beyond the mice that don't have the cannabinoids. What it seems is that we lay down a foundation in a very rigid, hardwired way, but then to progress beyond that, we've got to destroy connections and make new ones. In other words, learn new things. Relearn. Not, there's a difference between learning something the first time and then rewiring to learn something new. And the cannabinoids control that. I call it open-mindedness, you know? Being able to respond to your environment and say, ah, this is now what seems to be true. We'll throw away the old. So... We have to learn, we have to mem remember, and we have to forget. And that's why, in part, the cannabinoids are so important for things like post-traumatic stress disorder, where horrible memories have become dominant themes that people can't escape from. It's been clearly shown that cannabinoids help you forget unpleasant memories. How would you like to walk around with your worst nightmares in your brain all the time? Right? Some people are going to be wired that way. They're not going to make enough cannabinoids. In many cases, they could probably be helped. Smoke a little dope. All right, so learning and forgetting go hand in hand. We need both of them. Addictive behavior is another really fascinating field now. It turns out that things like alcoholism, heroin addiction, tobacco, funnel the reward behaviors, funnel through the cannabinoid pathways. So in my mind, there are two things that can be done. One is what the world is trying to do, and the other is what I would do. What's being developed now and has been developed are drugs that will inhibit the cannabinoid system, all right? In particular, one that's going to come out on the market if it's not already there uh, for diet. Because food is a reward fact, there's a reward behavior associated with eating. Well, Ramanabon turns off the cannabinoid one receptors. So, oh, great, you're going to eat less, you know? And if you're a heroin addict, you're not going to get a reward. And if you're an alcoholic, you're not going to get a reward. So from that simple perspective, you'd say, oh, this is pretty cool. It's going to help some people. On the other hand, I would say that the cannabinoid system has been evolving for five, six hundred million years. And it's there for a reason. And we've already gone through how it balances your immune system. Well, that, that's probably the CB2 receptor more than the CB1, but how it protects your nerve cells, how it's involved in every aspect of your body's functioning. Do you want to turn that off? 
To me, the answer is no. What you should do is satisfy the need. Use cannabis. And how many of you know people who were alcoholics until they started using cannabis? They're no longer alcoholics, you know? How many people do we see who are on opiates for pain medication and they're zombies and all of a sudden they start taking cannabis and they stop using opiates? Satisfy whatever that biochemical need is that's determined by their biochemistry and their genetics. Don't deprive them of it and leave them susceptible to all of these nasty illnesses. What's the big deal? What is getting high? You know, what, what is this thing that is so feared? Open-minded, sensitive, you know, how about sex on pot, you know? Why are we forcibly being, tur- you know, turning off our body, turning off our sensations? What kind of world, you know, this is freedom in America? It's insane. The reproductive system. (laughs) Whether you're a man or a woman, your reproductive system is regulated by endocannabinoids. There are certainly some people who probably should not be consuming. If your balance is too high, for example, a woman's uterus is loaded with endocannabinoid receptors. And they have really high levels of anandamide. But it's not stable. It doesn't stay that way. It goes up and down with the menstrual cycle. In particular, the anandamide level drops during ovulation. Why? Because if you have a high cannabinoid level, you cannot get implantation of the fertile egg. All right? It's also involved in moving through the oviducts. It's also involved in sperm maturation and the penetration of the sperm into the egg. It's also involved in the development of the the, uh, fertilized egg. All right, in part provided by the mother and later on actually duties taken on by the developing uh, embryo. So it's, it's very fundamentally involved in reproductive behavior. In fact, fatty acid aminohydrolase, which I suspect we'll hear in the next, next talk, uh, is, is very much involved in regulating our endocannabinoid levels. And high levels of fatty acid aminohydrolase are associated with uh, spontaneous abortions. And then the respiratory system, you know. I know people who, the only time they could ever run is when they consumed cannabis because they had exercise-induced asthma. And they could run fine as long as they consumed. They couldn't run at all without it. And there's reasons in terms of immune modulation and some of these cytokines, cell, you know, molecules that talk to other cells, why cannabis is involved in that. So in general, we've seen a lot of interesting fundamental effects. I want to now just mention rapidly that cannabinoids kill a variety of cancer cells. And these have been documented. It's, it's, I, want to, I have to say this always with caution. It's not like consuming cannabis is going to save everybody's life. It's not going to kill everybody's cancer. That's not what it's about. But we have compounds that inhibit breast cancer growth in tissue culture in some cases. In other cases, it's in animal studies. All right, Colorectal cancer, glioma, leukemia, lymphoma, lung cancer, pheochromocytoma, prostate, skin, thyroid. All right? So the take-home message from where I've been going here is that free radicals are the friction of life. They're responsible for aging. Endocannabinoids are the oil of life, and we can consume these oils in the form of hemp oil in particular because it turns out we've all heard omega-3s are good for your heart. Well, omega-3s are made into endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids protect your heart. Is that the link? No, it's not been properly studied, but, you know, we put one and one together and come up with two. All right? This is a very interesting study. These are these knockout mice that I was telling you about. That, what you're looking at is percent survival of the mice, how many are living versus their age. And you see that the wild-type mice, you know, are fine at 24 weeks of age. Uh, however, if you look at the line that's declining there, you're looking at the CB1 knockout mice that have no receptors. They die early. That's a hint. You need your cannabinoid system. All right? 
All right. So back to the mind-body connection. Happiness, state of well-being, characterized by emotions ranging from contentment to intense joy. Pain. You know, can you be happy if you're in, in physical pain all the time? Uh, if you're not enjoying your environmental stimuli, things like your food, science, music, art, sex, literature. These things are all enhanced. Who, you know, who's smoking dope? Scientists, for sure, I know that. You know, in, in the 70s, I'd go to scientific meetings, and, you know, 30% of the people were getting high. You don't see that happening anymore. Oppression has set in. You know, musicians, certainly, gluttons, artists, people in general who like sex, writers. You know, historically, those are people who like cannabis more than anyone, right? So, in summary, life's, there's a direction to life's imbalances. It's because we're making all these free radicals. And we're all getting younger, not older. That's why there are so many illnesses for which marijuana is the ideal medicine. In my mind, it should be the first thing that's tried, not the last. It should be the first because of how it has such a multitudinous impact. And it's safe. You know, do we need the FDA to tell us that we shouldn't take too much marijuana? What happens if you take too much marijuana? You fall asleep, you know? I mean, it's self-regulating and it's very non-toxic for most people under most circumstances. So... Is marijuana the ultimate holistic medicine or the devil's weed? Next, we hear from the Louise Turner Arnold Chair in Neurosciences, Professor, Departments of Pharmacology and Biological Chemistry, Director, Center for Drug Discovery, University of California, Irvine, California, Dr. Danielle Piomelli. So what is the natural history of the endogenous cannabinoid? I'll give you, really, in a, in a nutshell, what we, we think these compounds are doing in the brain. They're working in a little bit in a different way than other um, transmitters are. In, uh, uh, in the brain, transmitters work at uh, uh, specialized junctions uh, between cells which are called synapses. And cell A on the top communicates with cell B on the bottom by spewing chemicals right here at this synaptic cleft. Really what happens is that uh, there are receptors on the postsynaptic cleft, on the postsynaptic side, and when... Uh, uh, an electrical signal travels down here, arrives at the presynaptic ending, transmitters are released, and these transmitters uh, activate receptors which produce in the postsynaptic cell expected responses. So when you hear about dopamine, when you hear about uh, serotonin, when you hear about glutamate, these are all the receptors that are used to manufacture interesting uh, um, pharmaceutical agents. Uh, they all work basically through this sort of canonical mechanism. Cannabinoids don't work that way. Cannabinoids start when these other classical transmitters have ended. In the case of cannabinoids, when a receptor postsynaptically, perhaps also presynaptically, but for the sake of simplicity, I only show you here in the postsynapse, when a postsynaptic receptor is engaged, lipids in the membrane of the postsynaptic side become activated substrates for enzymes which cleave them, producing biologically active cannabinoid compounds. And shown here are the two I have mentioned before, anandamide and 2-AG, glycerol. So this event is instrumental to the activation of the pathway that leads to the formation of the endogenous cannabinoids. The endogenous cannabinoids, therefore, are produced in the postsynaptic structure, not released from the presynaptic structure. That's important because what happens is that they travel backwards. They travel backwards in a retrograde manner 
to activate cannabinoid receptors which are exclusively present in the presynaptic ending, okay? So this is the, the, exactly the opposite of all the other transmitters do. Anterograde, and now we are talking about retrograde signaling, okay? When this is done, that is when cannabinoid receptors have been activated, what we need to do is to eliminate the cannabinoid signal. Otherwise, the signal is not discrete, is not limited in time and space. And the body has developed ways of making that, uh, uh, carrying out that uh, deactivation process. And there are two important steps. The first is a step of internalization. The cannabinoids are brought inside the cell, here in the presynaptic ending, but also in surrounding cells. And once they are inside the cell, they find enzymes, again, these proteins, which uh, cleave them, uh, break them down into bits and pieces, completing the process of deactivation. Now, it took a while to figure out all this pathway, but I think it was worthwhile. Why? Because each of, the, of these individual uh, steps can serve as a target for interesting medicines. And ultimately, although I get a kick out of discovering new things, I'm only truly excited when I can come up with uh, a way of improving on, uh, on nature if possible. And each of these particular steps is potentially useful. That is, we could think about blocking formation of endocannabinoids if we thought that endocannabinoids were involved in some pathological response. We could block cannabinoid receptors. We've heard before about one such molecule which is close to be marketed in the United States called Remonaband, cannabinoid receptor antagonist, used, uh, which will be used in obesity. Uh, or we could activate the cannabinoid receptor. That's, of course, what the GW uh, cannabis mixture does, activates cannabinoid receptors plus possibly other things we don't fully understand. Obviously, if we activate or inhibit the cannabinoid receptor, we will have very different uh, effects. And the choice must be made based on pharmacology and science, what is the best uh, choice for each individual disease. But... My focus has been, in the lab, has been mostly on the activation of this cannabinoid receptor and also on the blockade of this intracellular enzyme. Let's talk, first of all, of the activation of the, of the cannabinoid receptor in the context of one particular condition, pain, which is well known to be modulated by cannabinoid receptor activators or agonists, as they're called. How does this work? When I say, first of all, is well known, what do I mean? There is continuous controversy, but uh, let's, let's be clear here. There are certain things that are controversial just because nobody wants to really know the truth. And there are certain things that uh, we know they are right because throughout the history of a particular molecule, of a particular therapeutic agent, keep recurring. And this is the case for, for cannabis and pain. There is a continuous recurrency of uh, um, analgesic actions since the very inception of the studies on cannabis. And in fact, this particular uh, book here, which you might not be able to see, it reads a dispensatory commentary on the pharmacopoeias of Great Britain and the United States by 
Robert Christensen, and bears the date uh, 1848. This particular book is, uh, pro provides in the appendix the very first uh, description of the effects of cannabis, the first one to be published in the United States. Uh, a passage from uh, this appendix I just mentioned, um, uh, cited here, um, uh, it actually transcribes an experiment, uh, uh, outlines an experiment conducted by um, uh, Dr. Christison, the author of this appendix, on some extracts of cannabis he received from a Dr. Robertson in India. On trying Dr. Robertson's extracts once for toothache, I found that about four grains, which isn't a whole lot, taken at 3 a.m. caused in an hour cessation of pain. That's, a, that's interesting. A pleasant numbness in the limbs, giddiness, a rapid succession of unassociated ideas and impossibility to follow a train of thoughts, <laughs> frequent intervals in sleep, and slight increase in the force of the pulse. I don't think anybody can add anything more to the pharmacology of cannabis. But it highlights also my personal, my personal problem as a pharmacologist. As a pharmacologist, as I, I started off by saying my, my mission is to try and invent new medicines. Well, I cannot possibly come up with a medicine that does all these things. We need to do better than that. I mean, if you, are, if you have a toothache, maybe you don't want to be euphoric. Maybe you just want to have your headache to, get, to go away or your toothache to go away. And as a pharmacologist, I, my, my purpose is to try and provide patients with that tool. So how can we really uh, improve on cannabis? How can we um, exploit what cannabis is teaching us, uh, improving on uh, the efficacy of this compound with, uh, and eliminating the side effects that, that it has? Well, to do that, we really need to understand how the endogenous cannabinoids, and particularly anandamide, regulate, uh, regulate pain. <coughs> it is generally thought that pain regulation occurs in the brain, and that is certainly true. The brain up here serves a very, very important function, not only in regulating pain, but most importantly in giving us a sense an appreciation of pain. That is, we can add anxiety on top of pain, we can add depression on top of pain, we can just dismiss pain. And the pain experience is completely different depending on how the brain processes it. But let's not forget that pain does not start in the brain. The brain doesn't even have nerve endings. It doesn't feel pain. The rest of the body does. And so there is a whole machinery outside the brain that is triggering a series of events which are eventually read by the brain, are interpreted by the brain. And these events start at the very uh, outskirts, at the very border of our body, in the mucosae, in the skin, in those terminals, nerve terminals, that are the first signal telling the rest of the body, telling the brain, there is damage going on, be careful, don't do this or do that. This is the key, um, very first uh, signal of, uh, of pain. And the endogenous cannabinoids, just like the opioids, endogenous opioids, not only works, work here in the brain to regulate our own interpretation of the pain phenomenon, but work right here in the periphery to curb pain at the very at its very inception, at its very initiation. 
closing out the first day of the conference, was the man many consider to be the rediscoverer of the truth about medical cannabis, Dr. Todd Micaria. Thank you so much. I'm frankly amazed. I had really taken for granted being taken for granted. (laughs) And all of a sudden I find myself the subject of these memorializing send-ups on the occasion of my possible termination of my career. I um, owe all of this to actually Dr. W.B. O'Shaughnessy. Dr. O'Shaughnessy introduced cannabis to Western medicine. He provided us with a couple things. First, clinical, scientific, medical study of cannabis in a, in a Western medical framework. He also provided us with open-mindedness and a willingness to consult with others and listen. He went to visit with the dissipated and the depraved in various cannabis shops, in addition to trying cannabis on animals of different species, healthy humans, probably of the medical student genus, and finally of different medications, of uh, different illnesses, pain, arthritic pain, seizure disorders, depression. He described in one of his citations the first treatment of chronic severe depression. And even though it came from a different culture, the Persian medical system provided a clinical framework that we all assume today. So much of that, unfortunately, has been taken from us by non-medical forces that have insinuated themselves into the practice of medicine in most ungodly and unholy ways. We see victims around us here today that should not be the victims of this kind of malice. Sitting right out here in the first row are two poster children that are examples of what evil and maliciousness non-medical stipulative reality can perform. They have forbidden Dr. Molly Fry and her husband, Dale Schaefer, attorney, from having appropriate medication for the treatment of their conditions and have expressly and specifically prevented them from getting the right medication and being obliged and forced to take medication that is both sickening and really diminishes their ability to mount a defense. This kind of Kafka-esque treatment is unfortunately not limited to them. Another patient of mine, Robert Schmidt, Genesis 429, uh, he was prevented from using cannabis or Marinol by the same non-medical evil schmucks in the federal prosecutory system in the so-called pre-sentencing program, where they poisoned him with Effexor, causing serious cardiac 
complications as well as gross edema and inability to focus or concentrate or mount a credible defense. But this is the evil and dirty kind of thing that these scoundrels continue to practice. What gives them the right to make these medical decisions? Where did they get this prosecutorial and judicial hubris? Who can you complain to when they commit the, these ugly acts? Nobody, because they have insinuated themselves and stuck us with their brand of malpractice. And they continue to do this. We have the DEA, this laughable collection of police, um, taking upon themselves making medical decisions and medical judgment calls. Where did they get qualified for that? I'm in Bolivia as this program airs, and I'll be sure to have some great programming upon my return. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Cultural Baggage and that you'll be with us next time. And as always, I remind you that because of prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT Houston.